0: In the world of programming, are any of you in here programmers? No good. Then I can say whatever I want, and no one will know. Just kidding. In the world, in the world of programming, we do have a couple, and they're not here today. But uh, in the world of programming, there's kind of two words that are important for how you talk about what's happening in a system of, let's say, software or an operating system, right? Uh, and so, when someone designs a piece of software or like a user interface or an operating system, they build in what are called features to that system. So a feature is something that's intentional, it's supposed to happen within that system. So for instance, you click the texting app on your phone and that app will open and you can then send a text, right? That's a feature of that operating system on your phone. So that little operation of the texting app responding when you click on it, that's the feature and the letters respond. Uh, Or let's say you want to take a picture on your phone. You click the photo icon or the camera icon. Your phone then knows to display the output of the camera on your phone's screen, and and it also knows to display that shutter button on the same screen so you can push that button. Uh, When you do press that digital button, which is not really a button, it's just a representation of a button which has been programmed onto the screen, right? Uh, then the phone's operating system captures a photo, saves it to your phone's memory, and you end up with 30,000 pictures that you don't know what to do with, like we all have on our phones. All of those operations are features. They're normal expected functions in a, in a system. So, uh, many systems have these. But one of the things that also happens in kind of the programming and design of things, is what are called bugs. And I know you've all experienced them because that's when you're mad at your phone or your computer. A bug in the system is when something unexpected happens or when something doesn't happen how you think it should happen, right? I honestly don't see this very often because the only like program stuff I interact with is what's commercially available and that stuff tends to be pretty much fixed of the bugs before it gets to us. Uh, But I can remember when phones used to just do weird stuff and you'd have to like just reboot them and you didn't know why, right? Uh, So you click on the camera and like the email app opens. You're like, what is happening? That's a bug in the system. Or more often it will be something like you download an update and then every time you open a certain app, it just crashes until you update that app, right? That's kind of the most common one. Those are bugs. They're not expected. They're not intentional. Now, in our world of Christianity here in the church, I think that oftentimes we get the features and the bugs or the aberrations of Christianity mixed up a little. Today, what we're going to start to see is that opposition and even persecution are actually a feature, not a bug. That opposition to the gospel is the normal expected thing that we we see. It's the norm to be expected and influence and power are actually the bugs in the system to watch out for. As as the church. And when we get these things mixed up, we tend to get ourselves, our souls, into a lot of trouble because we create what's called cognitive dissonance for ourselves. The expectation we have of life in the world just doesn't match up with what we see and, and what we struggle with. And so instead of understanding that opposition and persecution and suffering are features of the system, we think they're bugs. And so when they happen, we get frustrated. So I want to dig into Acts chapter four and let's talk through this together. So if you've got a Bible, Acts chapter four, we're going to kind of spend our time in the first section of Acts chapter four. If you're new with us, visiting us today, we're just walking our way through the book of Acts. Between now and the start of the Christmas season, we're going to finish up the book. So that's uh, the, the, the amount of time we're going to spend. So that's why we're in chapter four. This is now week seven, I believe, of this series. And so we're kind of just walking our way through. So Acts four, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's a blue one around you. If you don't own a Bible, there's some paperback ones on the black table in the lobby you could take home as a gift. So Acts chapter 4. Now, as we're continuing, we're kind of plugging along in the book of Acts. What we're seeing, of course, is that there's movements that kind of lead from one chapter to the next. Luke, Dr. Luke, is the author, and he's a good writer. And so Acts chapter 1 leads into Acts chapter 2. And then the power and the glory of the Holy Spirit means that Acts chapter 2 sort of demands Acts chapter 3. And then we see the healing power of Acts 3 led the early church toward another sort of inevitable step in its growth, which is kind of growth pains or or growing pains, right? Uh, So the the early church has been now infused with the power of the Spirit. They're moving out into the world of Jerusalem at this time for them with healing power. And so the church now is going to experience for the first time, not a bug in the system, but instead they're going to experience one of the norms of following Jesus, and that is, opposition. And then we're going to see a little bit later on its first persecution. So persecution and suffering is an inevitable element of genuine Christian faith. Now, what I don't mean by that is that we as Christians look for persecution in everything, because I think some of us are doing that sometimes, right? We Any little thing we we bump up against in the world that's broken by sin, we think it's persecution. But at the same time, it's an inevitable element of genuine Christian faith. John 15, Jesus told this to his disciples. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, Jesus is using a uh, sort of a form of rhetoric or a speech here called fortiori. Uh, I think we've talked about this before, but this basically means that what's true of the greater will also be true of the lesser. So what's true for Jesus will be true for us. Jesus even ends his beatitudes with predictions about persecution or opposition or suffering. As we continue to grow into Christ-likeness by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, the reward for that is not influence, power, fame, adulation. That's not the way it works. That would actually be a bug in the system that we need to watch out for. Instead, the normal expectation of growing in Christ-likeness is what Jesus got, which is opposition and maybe persecution. And the Bible's not hiding this from us. It's not like, tricked you, you didn't know that. This is clear in the Bible. Paul, writing to Timothy to strengthen him in ministry, said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be loved by everybody. No, will be persecuted, he says, 2 Timothy 3. Here's a quote from the martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer from, uh, that he wrote from a concentration camp in 1937 uh, in Flossenburg, Now I have to admit, even as I I read this so many times this week and I, and I found myself typing out like excuses as to why this isn't true or explanations to like, well, maybe it didn't, but I I don't want to soften it. I I just want to read it and let it sit on us because listen to this suffering is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Luther reckons suffering among the marks of the true church And one of the memoranda drawn up in preparation for the Augsburg Confession similarly defines the church as the community of those who, quote, are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. Discipleship, this sentence is so important for us. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. Discipleship, following Jesus, means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. So understand that the way that we as American Christians have been conditioned to think about our Christian lives, being lives generally of ease and comfort, is not the norm. That's the bug. That's the aberration in church history. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that's not what's normal in the history of the church again no one is saying in the bible or in the history of the church no one is saying that suffering and opposition are enjoyable nobody says that right the apostle paul like lord take this from me and the lord's like my grace is sufficient one commentator said this one advantage of being thrown on your back is that you face heaven it's interesting Facing opposition, facing suffering drives us to Jesus because it causes us to participate with Jesus by his power in his work in this world. Now, this is not from the Bible. This is my experience as a Christian. Show me a mature Christian and I'll show you a person who's experienced some form of suffering in their life. I've never not experienced that. I've never talked to somebody who seems full of the Holy Spirit, a person of love, joy, and peace, who at some point doesn't tell me a story of significant suffering that they went through. That's just the way it works. So then, if all of this is true, how does the early church, how do these apostles respond to opposition? Well, last week, back in chapter 3... We saw that there was this guy who'd been disabled from birth. He was lame from birth, who was healed supernaturally. And in case you're wondering, we think that's historical data, like he really got healed in his body for real. This isn't a metaphor. We then see this man filled with joy in what the Bible calls a portico, uh, and we see a crowd gather around to see what's going on, right? Makes sense. Somebody who's been disabled from birth starts walking around and leaping for joy, People who know him are going to be like, what is happening? So they gather around. Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that's now working in him in this new way, he sees this and jumps on the opportunity. Now, if you did your homework reading over the last week, you know from that chapter that Peter delivers a pretty powerful and kind of controversial but powerful sermon there at the end of chapter 3 of Acts. And this is the moment we find ourselves now at the beginning of Acts 4. So Acts 4, 1 through 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. So what's happening here? Well, there's this Holy Spirit-empowered moment beginning to take place. There's movement starting to happen. That, that's a word that I like to describe the early church. It's a movement, and you, you see it begins as a groundswell here in these stories at the beginning of Acts. And here, in this moment, the religious leaders are annoyed, greatly annoyed. I hate how much that I I, I like. I get that. Religious leaders, greatly annoyed. Lord convicts me, (laughs) right? And so they're greatly annoyed because why? People are getting to Jesus without them. And they can see their own influence and their own power fading away. Notice, right, there's 5,000 men. That's not counting women and children, but still 5,000 men who are now part of this movement. So it's significant. Now, Now, one thing to note here in Acts is the Sadducees sort of leading role in this arrest and in the persecution we're gonna see in the rest of Acts. This is one of the two groups we see in the Gospels, uh, but we also see here in Acts. Now, you might remember the Pharisees, if you've been around church or know your Bible a little bit. The Pharisees opposed Jesus for what he taught kind of on more religious grounds, religious convictions. The Sadducees, though, they opposed Jesus and hear his church mainly, it seems, from political motivations. This is why the Sadducees are not as involved in the early persecutions Against Jesus himself. But as they saw this growing threat to their place of power in their cultural situation, they become enemies of the church. They they don't want this because they're going to lose power. It's going to decentralize and they're going to lose that influence. And so in the book of Acts, the opposition and the persecution that we see is largely driven by the Sadducees. They're basically the group who denies the reality of the supernatural in their day. And above all, they deny the bodily resurrection. Uh, We see this in places like Mark 12. And so to the Sadducees, the idea of Messiah is really an ideal, and and the Messianic age is more of like a process, right? And so these men had mainly gained their power in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's when they kind of rise to prominence. They're the well-educated, wealthy, elite religious leaders, political leaders sort of in Their time, But they're also willing to kind of do whatever it takes to stay in power. And so they don't want anyone rocking their Sadducee boat. So here in this scene in Acts 4, they make this arrest, but it's too late in the day to hold a legal hearing. And so the Jewish leaders throw Peter and John into jail. There are some some commentators that I read that said they kind of did this on purpose, like just to add a little bit to it. I don't know if that's true or not. Kind of makes sense, though. Uh, they possibly threw the healed beggar in, too, because he's with them in the events that follow here in, in Acts 4. And so the story continues then in verses 5 through 7. So they've, Peter and John and maybe the healed guy have been in jail all night. And then verse 5, on the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. Now, that group of people is called the Sanhedrin. It's a governing body, so to speak with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, this is a place where we need to put ourselves in this text, paint the picture, because it's easy to just read over this and miss the intensity of this moment. This court assembled in concentric circles in front of Peter, John, and let's assume the healed man with the high priest sitting in the middle right so i don't know if you've been interviewed by a like panel before or a board before but it's pretty intimidating and and this might be the most intimidating sort of setting to be if you're peter john or this healed guy right because peter john the healed beggar peter and john are just kind of average working guys think of your average person Did, did not and you'll see this in the text weren't educated didn't have the opportunity to get education doesn't by, But definitely doesn't mean they're not intelligent. They just didn't have that opportunity. And, and then you've got the healed beggar, who we know has just been begging his whole life, so he didn't go to school. And here they are, seated in front of this religious elite assembly, who is now demanding an answer to the question, which is actually a trap, by what power or by what name did you do this? See, if they can get Peter and John to attribute the healing power to anyone other than Jehovah— they, they could technically sentence them to death. This is in Deuteronomy 13. And so remember, this is the same kind of setting that did condemn Jesus and turned him over to Rome. And so again, remember what Jesus said is gotta be playing in their heads. If they did this to me, they'll do this to you. And so the reality is that if I'm there, I'm absolutely paralyzed with fear. This is terrifying. Unless like Peter we filled with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 8, here's the way the church responds to opposition. Then Peter, and Luke doesn't want you to miss, filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just Peter on his own. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders... So he knows who they are, rulers of the people and the elders. If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. Now, I love this. Peter is like, I'm going to make sure you for sure know who I'm talking about explicitly. He doesn't mince words, right? Right? Peter's a little punk rock here, and I love it. He's like, "Oh, you kind of want to? You're trying to trap me? Well, let me let me just tell you the truth. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who, by the way, you crucified, and God raised from the dead, which I know you don't believe in. So Peter's not mincing words. By him, this man is standing before you. Well, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone." And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's a very important verse. Now, verse 13, just beyond this, is a gold mine of content. And I wish we had time to do a whole Sunday just on this sentence. What was the difference maker in this bold Speech Yes, filled with the Spirit, but what did they recognize? It wasn't any of the normal things that make someone authoritative or eloquent, right? It wasn't education. It wasn't any of that. It says they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, they didn't have training. They didn't have school, but they had been with Jesus. I can't think, as a Christian, of a deeper compliment for someone to give us. I don't know about you, but I can recognize that you've been... With Jesus. So so I'm asking myself as I'm thinking about this and studying this week, do people, even people who are looking to oppose our Christianity, do they recognize that we have been with Jesus? Uh, these apostles, because of this reality of having been with Jesus and now being filled with his spirit, are ministering beyond their natural capabilities. Peter and John are not shocked by this moment of opposition. Instead, they're bold and confident in the face of it. Not arrogant, not filled with pride, but filled with the Spirit. Peter doesn't pull any punches, and he's not using any metaphorical language, right? He says it there in verse 10. Let it be known to all of you, and not just you, but everybody else who might hear me, and the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you all. So even though Peter knows... That the Sadducees here, they don't want to hear about the resurrection from the dead. Peter just says it, whom you crucified, but whom God raised. Then if that's not even bold enough, then Peter makes this sort of religion-shattering comment in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. Like, hear that. If you remember one sentence from today, just remember that sentence, right? There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Not a king, not a president, not a pastor, not a priest. No other name under heaven by which you can be saved other than the name he named in the sentence before this, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who God raised from the dead. So for Peter, this moment of opposition and persecution is what? An opportunity since it's the normal expectation to just be bold about Jesus. And what was the religious leader's reaction? Uh, well, I can imagine there was some wringing of hands and some whispering, and I can't believe he said that, right? Among themselves, some, maybe some awkward shuffling in seats. Look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness, here it is, of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, uneducated common men, they were astonished. Why? Because Peter just outdid them in rhetoric. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing a man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. I mean, it's pretty tough to deny a miracle when the guy you've known as crippled his whole life is standing next to the people that healed him. Kind of hard, right? It's like, what are you going to say that well, here he is? The guy that everyone knew was crippled from birth is walking around. So there's awkward silence. They don't know what to do. Verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, right? Get out of here. Get these guys out of here. We don't know what to do. That's this moment. They conferred with one another. What are we going to do with these men? What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't pull the wool over the people's eyes, they've seen what's happened. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. And if you want to spread like wildfire the gospel of Jesus, tell some people full of the Holy Spirit not to talk about it and see what happens. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So for us, I think something to take away from this reaction is that there are going to be people in your life, who clearly are going to see the work of God right in front of them, really not have a way to respond to it, but still want to refuse and oppose you. That's just going to happen. For some folks, there is just too much on the line to admit that Jesus is Lord and that God is at work. But look at how Peter and John reply. Well, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you can judge, but we're we're going to keep speaking about what we've seen and heard. He's not a jerk about it. He's not being rude back to them. He's just saying, hey, I hear you, but I'm gonna keep saying what is happening. So again, where does this confidence in the face of this opposition come from? And unironically, we're talking about this on Pentecost Sunday. This is the Sunday when churches all over the globe are celebrating this moment of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Well, remember back to that key in verse 13. They had been with Jesus, But think about when they had been with and around Jesus in terms of why they're so confident now. They had been with Jesus during his ministry. They'd seen him heal. They'd seen him feed 5,000. They'd seen him raise people from the dead. They had heard all the teaching we have recorded in the Gospels, plus the stuff Jesus taught them that we don't have recorded. But most importantly for this moment, they had been with and around Jesus when Jesus was persecuted and opposed. They had watched this same religious assembly question him and condemn him. They had seen Jesus be unjustly killed. And then what had they also seen? They had been with the resurrected Jesus. They had seen him bodily resurrected from the dead. And now they're filled with the same spirit. They're filled with the Holy Spirit who was sent to them by Jesus to be with them. And so they're not antagonizing the Sanhedrin here. They're not causing trouble just to cause trouble. They're not being offensive intentionally. They're just not playing by the same rules. The followers of Jesus then, the the followers of Jesus then in Acts, and us as followers of Jesus now are part of a different system. We're part of a different kingdom with different features than the world system. And when we fully live into that, we can be bold like this because we're living into the same resurrection reality that Peter and John are here in Acts 4 filled with the Holy Spirit. See, Peter and John, like Jesus, are showing us that by the power of the Holy Spirit, there is a different way to be human. When you are ruled by the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit, you are not ruled by fear. What are the religious leaders going to do? Kill Peter and John? They saw them do that to Jesus, and they saw what happened after. So I guess if you're going to kill us, and he said what they do to us, what they do to him, you'll do to us, then we're going to be resurrected from the dead too. So, all right, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing then. So I don't know about you, but when I read this story, I want this kind of life. I want to live this way. I want to live this kind of like they're not being they're they're not being arrogant. they're just filled with the spirit and this is just what it looks like. They're not looking for suffering either. They're not out looking for it. and they're not crying suffering at every turn. They're simply just living life in the spirit and with Jesus in this broken world and their eyes are fixed on Jesus and filled by his spirit. And so what comes with that comes, and so they're simply not afraid. They're just not afraid. I think that's a simple way to put, what is it about Peter and John when they're filled with the Spirit here? They're just not afraid. Because what is there to be afraid of if there's a bodily resurrection coming? So suffering and opposition because of following Jesus for Peter and John and for you and for me is just a fact of life of following jesus it's just part of our normal experience of life in the broken world and it's a feature but what is also a feature is that in that suffering and in that opposition we become close to jesus and we are filled with his spirit and people hopefully will say of us that they recognize that we've been with jesus let's pray Jesus, thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for these moments we've shared together. And uh, I just ask that you would continue to be with us as we go out from here, as we walk day by day with you. And um, we just ask that you, Holy Spirit, would, again, fill us, that we would experience what it means to, to live in the Spirit, even in little ways. Maybe there's a conversation we have, and in that moment, we can just feel that you're with us, and so we're a little bit bolder than we might be. Holy Spirit, we just simply ask you to banish fear from our lives, that we would be people of love, joy, and peace because we're filled by, by your presence, and that means we're not afraid. And so would you, would you, Holy Spirit, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and would you help us to not be shocked? when opposition and suffering and maybe even persecution come. But instead, would you give us the attitude of these that we see in the New Testament, that we would rejoice, that we would be counted worthy to suffer in these ways. Would you help us to flip our expectations of life in this world so that we can be people who are obviously people of another kingdom who have been with you. We pray this in your name, Jesus, to the glory of our Father. Amen.